Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about the making of custom cowboy hats, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but usually ride solo for these speed listen bonus installments. Today, however, I'm joined by master hat maker Gene Baldwin to talk about the ongoing legacy and process of making custom cowboy hats. Gene Baldwin is one of only about 70 custom hat makers in America. A retired funeral director from Portland, Oregon, Gene and his wife moved to Sisters, Oregon in 1995. There, he bred and raised Arabian horses. He also started selling Soratelli cowboy hats. Then a friend asked him a pivotal question. You just going to sell or are you going to try to make them? And thereby hangs the tale of Baldwin's Hat and Boot Company and of making hats the old-fashioned way. Hey, Gene, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. First, let me say how much I appreciate your support of the Western Writers of America by donating a certificate for a custom hat to the auction held at the recent Western Writers of America convention, especially since my good friend Mike Bray won the auction and then handed me the certificate. <laughs> That's wonderful. Nice guy. Yeah, nice guy. So what was your response when you were asked, are you going to start making hats? I had never thought of that. I was selling Saratelli's, and when he came in and asked me that question, it provoked me to think about it. And I thought about it a while, and I thought that might be interesting to do. So I found a Western shop down in Grants Pass, Oregon, that made hats, and I called and asked if I could go down and visit for a while, and I did. And I watched them make a hat, and I thought, that is something I think I'd like to do. So I proceeded from there. I can watch somebody make a hat and go, that's really neat, but I have no way of doing that. <laughs> what was your background? What did you think could make you do that? And how did you go about getting the skills to do that? Life has been good to me, and I've done a lot of different things. And I've always been someone who has said, hey, I'll try it. From the people down in Grants Pass, I got the name of a guy who had scoured the countryside for antique hat-making equipment. I got involved with him. Met him down in Salt Lake City, came home and thought about it some more, and I called him and said, let's do this. So I got most of my antique equipment from him, and I proceeded from there to make hats. The first hats I made, I really wasn't too sure, but I've seen them over the years, and I think, wow, that's pretty good. It's been good for me. If I made those, my first hat would come out looking like a crushed eggshell. <laughs> How did your first hats come out? Did you have to experiment? I spent a week down in Salt Lake City trying to figure out how to use the equipment and came home. And yeah, you have to think about it. There are some people who have an artistic eye, and I think I have one. It was a trial period. You had to try it. If it didn't work, try again and do it a different way and so forth. And even today, as I make a hat, it's not too often that I don't have a better idea of how to do it when I make my last hat. It's an interesting field. I think you're somewhat like me. I retired after 35 years in my profession, and people say, you're retired now. And I tell them, I'm not retired. I'm in my third act because yeah. I'm as busy now as I ever was. And I feel that's the same way with you. Yeah, I was blessed to be able to retire the first time at 52. And we moved from Portland over here to Sisters, Oregon. I had a hay ranch. I had a bunch of horses. And as time went on, I got fewer horses and moved to another place. There was less work to do. And so since 2004, I started to make hats, incorporated. And so it's been a good retirement life. More hats than horses at this point. Oh, yeah. 
You talk a lot about old-fashioned values on your website. How does that come into play when you were building the business? You know, the, today there's uh, a lack of service, customer service. And being in the funeral service uh, business, I always made that the priority. Take care of your customers. And I applied that to the hats. I'm very concerned about how a hat fits. And I tell people, even though I may have your money and you may have my hat, it's still mine until you tell me it's comfortable. In a way, every hat has to beat your competition. I think I've been able to do that over the years. And people find out and word of mouth. And it's amazing how everything has taken off. I have customers from Siberia to South America, from Australia to Europe and across the United States. It's really grown to a point now where I'm concerned about getting my hats done. I don't know if I'm going to have to get somebody to come in and help, but we'll find out. That's fantastic. Let's talk about some of the basics. Where do your hat designs come from? I don't really have a pattern. I'm a custom hatter. People come in even though they have no idea what they want. But I found out they know what they want, but they haven't seen it. So it's up to me to present things to them where they can find that hat they want. Other people who come in, they know what they want. They know that they want a, a cattleman's crush or a longmire or whatever. Even though they have those ideas, they may want a different color. They may want it to look a little different. They may want the brim to be this way and so forth. People can also mix and match. They see something and they don't really care for the crown. They'd like to have it this way, but they like that brim. It's really interesting work. Very creative. Yeah, you have to be a little creative. I post some hats that I do on Facebook, and people seem to receive them very well. What makes a good fit? Because it's all about the fit with a custom hat. There's not a lot of custom hatters out there or hat makers that are concerned about the shape of the head. If you look at their website, they will have you measure your head. And if it's above size 7, let's say, then you take the next bigger size. And that's it. It's like going to a boot maker and saying, I want you to make me a pair of boots. And all he wants to do is know what size do you wear. He doesn't care about the shape of your foot. That wouldn't be a custom boot. If your customer in the store, you're able to measure them yourself. If they're in Siberia, as you say, what do you do at that point for them? I have a measuring kit I send. It contains instructions on how to measure their head with the measuring tape I send along. It also has a conformator in it, which is, oh, I don't know how to explain it, kind of the crown on the Statue of Liberty. You put it on your head and you tighten down some little finger screws and it has little things that press against your head and they take it off and send it back to me. I trace it on the paper and get the shape of their head. I can keep that in their file forever. And every time they want a hat, all they have to do is say, I want another one and tell me what they want it to look like. And I can do that. I've heard it said you listen to your customers and make the hat they want, not the hat you think they ought to have. That's an interesting statement. But for the customer at this point, how do you decide if a hat looks good on you? They tell me. I can't get in their head. There's a myth that says old hat guys that sold hats years ago used to be able to tell what looks good on you. Customers come in and say, I've got a narrow face or I've got broad shoulders or I've got a big head or a tiny head. I don't know what they want. But when they see it, they know what they want. In fact, years ago, Stetson would teach their salesman how to proceed with selling a hat to a guy by the way he wears it. Is it square on his head? Is he lean to the right on the head, left on the head, back on his head? And that's been interesting psychology that they used. It's interesting, but I don't know how to use that.
You also talk about renovating old cowboy hats. Somebody has a favorite hat, but it's all beat up and banged up and they want it refreshed. How do you go about that? To do a complete renovation, you have to take the hat all apart. You have to take the sweatband out, take the hat band off, and you have to proceed by cleaning it with cold water. You don't want to use hot water on it because it'll shrink it. Brush it out, clean it out. I usually put it in a washing machine and run it through a rinse cycle to get everything out of it. And then you start over with a complete hat with nothing on it, just like you would if you were going to make a hat from the beginning. It's a rebuild. Yeah, you put it in a new sweatband. They may want to change the hat band on it. They may want to change the style of a hat. So it's just as if you are starting over with a brand new hat, except they gave you the hat body. Are some materials easier to work with than others? And what's your favorite material to work with? I have nothing but felt. My hats begin with 100% European hair. A lot of people say, oh, rabbit. Yes, it is, but it's not like the hutch rabbit commercial hatters use here in the United States. It is European hair. It's bred for its fur. It is anatomically different than our hutch rabbits. They are a different kind. They will not breed. The European hair is a tough fiber. Commercial hatters, if they want to make a good hat without any beaver fur in them, they will oftentimes put European hair in it to toughen the hat up. From there, I go to a mixture of 50% European hair and 50% beaver. The beaver is an interesting animal because it has done so much for the United States. In the beginning of the 14th and 1500s, Europe completely ran out of fur. They had trapped everything out. There was nothing in Russia. Cologne, Germany was the center of the fur trade. And when they found out there was fur in this part of the country, they could not get here fast enough. The Dutch, the Russians, the French, the English were all here. The Russians trapped fur-bearing animals in the ocean along the Pacific coast, and the rest of them were here in Canada and the United States. So that's really what opened up America to the world was the beaver trade. And then the 100% beaver is the best of the best. Nothing has taken its place in the last thousand years. And the reason is the beaver fur on every little strand of fur has hooks all the way up and down the strand. And when you felt that by using hot water, steam, and pressure, you start with about a three-foot hat and keep shrinking it down to the size we wear today. That is so tight with all those little hooks that it is the best of the best for wearability, resistance to weather. Everything about a hat is just the best. When did the wearing of the traditional cowboy hat really come into play in the United States? They've always had some type of a hat, but it wasn't until about the 1850s that Stetson was out west here, and he felted some fur and made the first hat, which we call the boss of the plains. And that's what started Stetson's hat business, and from there it just blossomed. Everybody was wearing hats before World War II, and after World War II, they started not wearing hats. So at that time, he started to make ladies' hats also, but that kind of ended up in 1970 where he closed the plant, and today it's a franchise. Stetson, a lot of these big-name hats are franchised and made at certain companies throughout the United States. Cowboy hats, they're different than hats that are worn for fashion. They are really made to be working hats, and there's a difference between that and a fashion hat. Yeah, my dad always wore a hat. It was a fedora-type hat. But when you're out in the heat all day long, you want something to protect your face, keep the sun out of your eyes, and the cowboy hat does that. You want something with a taller crown so that the heat can transfer out of your head through the hat into the air. 
a cowboy hat does that. So yeah, they're different. They're stiffer. The street hats, the little fedoras and stuff, they're lightweight. In other words, they only have about four ounces of fur in them. Our hats are double that at eight ounces. In order to keep it so that it's wearable and doesn't fall down over your ear, you have to have stiffener in it. But that's for a reason. You've got to maintain them on your head in any type of weather. People wear baseball hats all over the place today and other kinds of hats. But even though they're wearing hats, hat etiquette has been lost along the way. Am I correct in that? Yeah, it is, really. A guy who wears a cowboy hat, when a lady comes in the room, they'll stand up and they'll take their hat off. When you meet a lady on the street, you're supposed to take your hat off. You usually keep it on when you go in a public building, but when you come into a house, you take your hat off. When you eat in a restaurant, you should take your hat off. So there's a lot of those things to remember when you wear a cowboy hat, if you want to really be a respectful cowboy. And today, when you go through security at the airport, you got to take your hat off. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's true, yes. They don't want anything hidden under it. Talking about that, how do you travel with a cowboy hat? What's the best way of doing that? Hey, I don't know. When I'm on an airplane, I don't want to set it up above because somebody's going to put their suitcase in there. And by the time I get to where I'm going with bad weather or something, it may not look like it did when I put it in there. If you want to wear it, it's always poking the seat behind your head. That's a real problem. Sometimes I've gone places where I've just made a hat with a smaller brim. In fact, I did that when I went to the wholesale market in Denver. It was an Aussie type hat. And the guy at the airport said, matey, where'd you get that hat? He was Australian. His name was Noel Wiltshire. So I do business with him in Australia just because of that hat I was wearing in the airport in Denver. Most of the guys will just hold it in their lap. But for a 14-hour trip to Europe or something, I don't think that's a good way to go. There are hat boxes that you can get to protect them. Yes, but they charge you to carry it aboard nowadays. Normally, I don't like hat boxes because you can put your hat in there. It's hanging by the brim. There's a cover on it. There's no circulation. So I give hat hangers or supporters that go on the wall. The hat sits on it just like it does your head. If you're not going to wear it, you can drape a bag over it and let the bag hang open at the bottom so there's circulation of air. Keep the dust off your hat. And I only use hat boxes just for a short period of time. Well, the Baldwin Custom Hat, there's no breaking in period. As soon as you put it on your head, it fits and comfortable. That's the goal. And again, it's customer service. People don't see customer service a lot, but when they see it, they like it. So my goal is to make a hat you can take right out of the box and put on your head. Some guys, it's just impossible. When I get the conformator back and I trace it out and I think, oh man, did he make a mistake here? But I found out that no, they didn't. It's just the shape of their head. And they've never been able to go to the store and buy a hat. So when they get something that fits their head right out of the box, they remember that. And it's good word of mouth advertising. The other thing that makes the huge difference between a custom Baldwin hat and something that's manufactured by another company, you don't use powder on your hats. You use a shellac that's built in. There's no dyes that are going to run with your hats. That's a whole process that you have to go through to make sure that's correct. Most of us get our hats from a company in Tennessee. They do all the felting. They do the dyeing. But there are some hats, black hats especially, when a guy sweats, you can see black dye run down his forehead. I'm very careful about certain named hats people want me to clean. I lost a customer once because I did his black hat, and I couldn't get the dye to stop running out of it after I cleaned it. I lost that customer. 
So I tend not to do anybody's hats except my own as far as renovation is concerned because I know they're not going to run die out. I know how they're going to be. Some of these hats that have a powder on them, if you hit them with any type of a, a cleaner, you may end up with a red tin on your hat because of the dye that's in it. The finishing powder started with hats to cover up imperfections in the fur. Yeah, you have to be very careful of the hat you take and say, yes, I'll clean it because you can really ruin a good hat. Baldwin hats have turned up a lot in movies and television. How did that come about? It's just word of mouth. Right now, the hottest thing going for me is a group out of Canada called the Dead South. They wear my hats. The head singer, Nate Hiltz, wears my buckaroo hat. It's a flat-crowned hat with a big brim, and people all over the world love that hat. So right now, that's the hottest thing going for me. I can trace them across the world because I get people who say, I want a black buckaroo hat, and I'll send them a picture of Nate Hiltz's hat. Is this the hat? And they say, yes. There's others that I've done, but right right now, that's the one that's really sending hats my way. Today, you'll have people say to you, I want a Longmire hat, or I want the hat from 310 to Yuma, and you're able to recreate those? I do my best. Yes, I've had people who like movie hats, and it's very easy because you have it right in front of you. You can get a picture of it and then duplicate it, for, and it's, it's a fun thing to do. I enjoy doing that very much. The other thing I thought was interesting is you've said that if you have a favorite photo of a relative wearing a hat and you've always wanted to replicate it, send that photo to you and Baldwin Custom Hats can do that. Yeah, it's the same as the movie hats. Anything that you can show me is a picture. Come and talk to me about what you want. Anything with a brim I can make and duplicate. I don't care if it's a tri-cornered hat that the British wore, anything. It's really fun to do. It's different. It's not the same hat every day. You can use your artistic talent to get it done. What's the most difficult hat you've had to create that you've had to struggle with and find your way to get it done correctly? I think it is the Great Basin hat, the Buckaroo hat. Before the Civil War, the country in this area in the Great Basin was all Mexican cowboys. But after the Civil War, the American ranchers came in and American cowboys. And today there's a hat that is used to remember those first buckaroos, the hat Nate Hilt wears in the Dead South. It's a crown that is flat like a stovepipe. The brim is big. And in order to make it the way the cowboys want it now, you can put a pencil roll, turn the edges up on the back half of the hat, and then they want it to go up a little bit. So if it goes up a quarter of an inch in the back, it has to be the same distance in the front down so that when they look at the hat from the side, that edge of the brim is a straight line from the back through the front of the hat. That was the toughest hat for me to start. I've made some great strides in figuring out how to do it, and I do a lot of them. Cowboy hats in general are working hats. The designs originally weren't about fashion. They were about this hat is used in this situation. Am I making the correct assumption for that? Yeah. For instance, it's a great basin hat. It's hot in this country. It runs from Mexico all the way up through Canada almost. It's a dry, high desert. In the mornings, it's cold. By the afternoon, you're sweating. And in the evening, you're cold again. So it was necessary to have a hat that would provide protection for all those different changes of the day. Nowadays, a guy leaves the ranch in the morning when they're branding cattle. They're up at 3.30 in the morning and it's cold. By the time they get out there and get the cows rounded up and start branding, it starts to get hot. 
So you can't have a hat that's going to get floppy or lose its shape during the day. Uh, a cowboy hat fits that purpose. What kind of cowboy hat do you wear? I'm blessed because I've got so many hats in my shop. Almost every one of them fit my head. But I've got a great basin hat. When I go to the ZX Ranch over at Paisley, I'll go and help them brand and so forth. And a lot of guys wear it. Great basin hat. In October, I'm going to the Idaho Rodeo Association Hall of Fame induction. I'll wear a real nice hat there. So it just depends upon where I go and what the purpose is. Talking of the Rodeo Hall of Fame induction, you've been the recipient of numerous awards for your hats. Again, I was blessed. In 2010, a couple cowboy saddle makers in Phoenix started the Art of the Cowboy Makers. It started in Loveland, Colorado, and it ended up in Vegas. At the same time, the NRF National Finals Rodeo was going and the Christmas holidays and everything. And my hats won from 2011 until I quit doing it in 2015. You have these hats that you make, and I have them on the shelf here. I don't sell them. People come in, and in order for them to know what can be done, they have to be able to see it. So I never sell a hat that's in my shop. I'll make one, but I want it to be custom. I make those for people and send them off. One of them has horses all the way around the brim. I sold it to a guy back in Denver, Pennsylvania, and he wrote and said, I love to wear this hat in town because every time I wear it, the Amish folks want to look at the horses running around the brim. It's a fun thing. That's very cool. How many hats do you think you've made in your career to this point? People ask me that, and I don't know. When I was in the business world and you were pushing dead in front of you, you knew exactly where you were. But this is such a fun thing to do, and I enjoy it so much. I don't know. I'll probably put out maybe about four or five hats a week. It's custom, so it takes time. Sometimes a rosette on the side of a hat takes a lot of time, so it pushes me back a little bit. I just completed two hats with rosettes on them for ladies. It's about five hats a week that I'll maybe do. And whatever the extra accoutrements are on the hats, like the rosettes or whatever may be, those take longer to create. A lot of handwork. Gene, I really appreciate you being with me today and taking time to talk to me about custom cowboy hats and the work that you do. It's fascinating, and I hope you and I will talk again soon. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, and I guess I'm going to be talking to you later about a custom hat. Oh, yes, you are. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and never, never sit on your hat. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.